0: I'm Eric. I'm Lucas. And And we are the Modern modern Agronomists.
1: We are putting a modern spin on an old industry. All
0: right, welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Modern Agronomists. Today, we have Brian Madigan from Country Visions Co-op. Thanks for coming today. Why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself?
2: Well, thanks, Lucas. So, I grew up on a dairy farm by Rosendale. I've... uh, this will be my 32nd spring as far as in agronomy, so I'm uh, looking forward to it. You know, usually they say you only get about 40 years to really make decisions on everything, so we got to make sure we keep uh, plugging away on this. Went to River Falls for school and got done, and I had an opportunity to get into the crop, crop fields. Been pretty happy with my career choice so far. And you're doing a little farming yourself as well, right? I do help my family farm there. Uh, my brothers, they've got... Dairy farm that we grew up on. We've got 160 cows that run through two robots currently. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm brought in as the cheap laborer on the weekends. <laughs> Depends on the definition of cheap, though, when you how much equipment you break and how much that costs, co- cost balance there. Well, today we kind of really wanted to
0: dive into some of the supply chain issues, per se, or just kind of where we're at in today's world of of ag and uh, kind of some of the things that you run into and you deal with basically on a daily basis going on here.
2: Yeah, you know, one thing you always look at is kind of when is spring going to start? You know, that's our main focus for our whole Midwest region here is spring for most places for planting is really just a two-week window. And what two weeks is it going to start? And if it dries up from north to south in the U.S., you know, right now currently Texas and that area there, they're planting corn. You know, they're rolling. And uh you know, we're on the tail end of the whole supply chain when we get done at the end of the year as far as planting. So in our region here overall, usually in a month period we'll get all of it planted. We'll start in the west and the south where it's warmer and drier in our sandier soils in our in our region. And then we get to the our uh west coast of Lake Michigan and the east side of Wisconsin here with the red clays, uh that usually takes a month to get warmed up and get going.
0: How much uh how much of an issue do we have once we do get going with moving product around, or is everything pretty much in place?
2: So at most of our plants and what we have, we've got enough supply on hand to get us through the planting window. Uh, it's just a matter of usually side dress season. When that starts about 30 days later after the planting starts, can we get resupplied? If we go all the way... Straight through a spring, which I've only seen twice in all the years we've been doing this, you know, it can be hard to keep up with supply and demand because you pull it out that quickly on the days when guys get planting. Uh, 16, 24 row planters, you know, think about it, that's as big as some of the sprayer booms we got going across some of the fields to spray. So we can plant a lot of crop in a quick hurry, which we have to in Wisconsin because we just have this shorter window to get everything in. If we can get uh, a day or two of just a supply, usually we can get things back up and in time.
1: Brian, why don't you talk about 2019 and that cropping year versus what we've been seeing today and how those events have led up to today?
2: Yeah, I mean, you go back, uh, 2018 and 2019, both were wet springs. And in our area, we were really short forage. We had a lot of winter kill. The wet falls were just devastating. I remember we were out, guys around this area chopping corn silage, and we were just rutting the fields up to no end, the water we were paddling through. We got those heavy rains in September. It just didn't seem like it would go away. Prices were depressed. Dairy wasn't great. We, our cash flows were not great. So kind of weren't really pushing a lot of fertilizer. And our, our thought was going into uh, to fall of 2019, uh, you know, we're not going to need much here. You get into that fall then, though, in September, we had a hurricane hit the Gulf Coast. And that kind of held up a little bit of supply product right then, made a little bit of the first kind of bump. It was also just at the beginning when... COVID was starting. You know, we talked about 2020, but it was in the late fall when they started picking that up in China. We really didn't know the effects of that until, until March of the next year. When that happened, you just had to worry about, you know, where were we going to be able to keep our employees safe? Where were we going to work, right? We were all worried about that. We didn't know what we could do for a supply standpoint. Why were we going to open a function? You know, best thing that happened that spring is actually we got go out in the fields. When everybody's in their own cave, we were isolated. We were pretty good. So you mentioned COVID and where we're at today
0: with some stuff going on. So what are, what are our biggest challenges, I guess, that we deal
2: with, per se? Well, the biggest challenge you run into is it's what you don't know. And Arlen Suderman from, you know, StoneX, he always talks about black swan events. And it's stuff that you don't predict, you don't see. And whether it be a hurricane, labor strikes, drought, flood, you know, the duration that came in the, in the fall of uh, 2020 as well, and then COVID, those events, really, you don't see them coming. They definitely had some strong effects. You know, last fall, John Deere going on strike. A lot of guys, when they got the harvest, they were concerned about where they going to be able to keep their equipment going. They were waiting for parts They could only operate with what was on the shelves. So those those sm- small changes in supply chain really, really affect us. And you know, we were fortunate the first year of COVID for most of our area and supply. We had enough on the shelves. We were restocked, right? Yeah. And so we were able to pull from that, whether it be our suppliers, everything was built up. And last year kind of was the first full year where, all right, we got things there. So we had all kinds of backup product already made in 2020, got through it. Last year, we tightened it up. And now we're going into the third year where they really have this affecting us.
1: Out of all those events, is there one that sticks out in your mind that has really affected the supply chain the most?
2: The biggest thing probably would be for fertilizer pricing is, is the hurricane events when they hit the Gulf Coast. You know, we had it in the fall of 2019. It hit the Gulf Coast. Uh, it shuts down production where a lot of that nitrogen is made down there. And it, and it just tightens up supply, gets everybody a little nervous. Got it again last fall again, right? And when we hit it last fall, then we were concerned about where we're going to get the soybeans exported out of the country. You know, short-term memory, here we sitting now today with the prices of soybeans and corn where we're at, but actually we were worried how last fall if we were going to get everything moved out. Those events kind of tie up supply chain. Not only did it, the, the hurricane last fall, though, affect the fertilizer markets, it also affect the herbicide markets. A lot of the glyphosate is produced in Louisiana down in there for bear and stuff like that. They bring it into the Gulf. That shut that down for a good couple months as well. You know, those those short supply chain disruptions, they add up after a while.
0: Do you feel this is almost the new norm going forward or is there potential to get back to more of a more stable inventory or everything?
2: I think I think we're we're close, but it's just the fact that normally you get one event. You know, a hurricane event will take you out for the year. We were dealing with the COVID supply chain that was there. Throwing another aspect last fall. Europe was at an all-time high on natural gas. Where does Europe get most of their natural gas from? Russia, Russia, right? So they were already getting squeezed last fall. And so when the nitrogen natural gas price is that high, they're just not going to produce nitrogen. They'll, they'll slow those plants down. They'll wait for a better pro- chance when it gets to a better pricing, and they'll do it. We're expecting that to happen once the spring slows down, right? Well, guess what happened now? Now we're not going to have that slowdown period. Price is still going to be high, but we still need the nitrogen. So there's always those those events that get in there. You go back to the geratio in Iowa from a couple of years ago, when they knocked out all those bins and stuff like that, we've also been dealing with seed corn supply and quality, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it comes back, whether it be from tar spot issues last fall again, that really affected us as far as supply issues, whether it be quality of our own corn and grain or uh, the supply of seed production in the field. So... It's been a lot of little things that add up. Like you said, normally it's only one. So now you want to order a semi-truck, right? We had gone out and ordered some supplies and stuff like that. One major supplier came back and said, oh, this was last fall now. Uh, yeah, we can't get that product to you. Uh, or it will cost you another $10,000 to order that same truck that you wanted to. You know, that pushed that back as far as ordering. So you get concerned about that, that. Just getting their normal products and your normal uh, replacement products is getting there. Take computer chips. Right. It's supposed to replace server for, for what you're doing. And all of a sudden now, what was supposed to be done last September, maybe might be May. It's really starting to drag out. And it's not just one industry. It's, it's really affecting all industries and as a whole.
0: You brought up, you know, what's going on in Russia right now. Russia does produce an awful lot of fertilizer, correct? So this will probably have direct relation, correlation to fertilizer going forward.
2: It'll affect the world supply. As far as us directly here, where we are in the Upper Midwest, it's not quite as big of impact because we don't get quite as much to us from Russia. You know, we product comes up the Gulf to get here. A lot of that usually comes in the East Coast or up into Canada through there to get to our region. But whenever you cut off the supply for part of your region in Europe, them, they got to come to another supplier. It just tightens everything up. You know, the U.S. as a whole, we've been cheaper this past year on fertilizer all along, mostly because of you know, we weren't going to export it. The other parts of the world were, were looking to import it, and it had tightened up the supply. It's kind of inverse. Normally, we were one of the highest-priced ones in the whole world because we would be buying it and stuff. So uh, kind of changed role reversal for us in the last couple of years. What
0: are some ways in these unpredictable times right now that uh, Country Visions um, are protecting themselves with the uncertainty that we have going on?
2: You know, a lot of times customers, they want to be able to contract grain and contract your fertilizer at the same time. It, if you know you could lock in a profit, you want to be able to do that. The limitation you get is that contracts for grain, you can go out you know, a couple of years on those contracts and have that out there. There's a lot of contracts exchange. When you talk fertilizer, we're kind of limited on on what there is because most of the fertilizer contracts are about fifteen hundred ton allotments, which is basically the same size as a barge. Well most customers, uh, you don't need a whole barge of your fertilizer for of that one product. There, we can't, you know, we tend to bundle it together. We get limited. We can go out instead of doing contract and get out further. We can go out and go ahead and do do a cash contract directly with a supplier. But most of those are usually you know, about six months out from where we're actually doing the contracting. So kind of doesn't give us quite the same reach and extended time. After that, we're relying upon our own storage to really build it up and have what we have to, to supply.
1: And our storage in-house gets us through planting, you said, right?
2: Most yep. most years, we'll have most of what we need to get through planting with all the locations we got. But uh, it's just a matter of having enough then because right behind it, after you're done planting, you start side-dressing, and we also start start top-dressing alfalfa. So we got to have a resupply in in time to get all that stuff redone.
1: So what percentage of our fertilizer would go out for top-dress on nitrogen? I mean, based on what we bring in versus what we have to bring in later, what percent would you say is we're, later?
2: We're almost 50-50. Okay. We need half our nitrogen that we need for the co-op up front for planting and, and for what we do. And the other half is all side dress. so And it depends what form we're using, if we're using UAN or if we're using urea, a dry product.
0: And the year like last year um, with potash, I guess, or foss, and mount, with an earlier fall, earlier harvest, we had to have moved quite a bit, so replacing all
2: that in a hurry. Well, if you remember back 2018-2019, those two falls... We didn't barely get our our wheat planted in the area, unless alone we always were trying to to make emergency crops. So we're putting in uh, trit and rye in for a lot of the guys. Uh, We didn't have as much planted of that, and that kind of helps shift some of the workload out as far as when we do fertilizer spreading. It was nice in the fall after that, though, in 20, we finally got things going. And then with the government payment for COVID, a lot of guys finally, they had some cash flow. Fert prices were of good value, and that fall, we ended up more than doubling our normal, the previous two falls, fertilizer amounts we sold in our area. And that set, that pretty much was for the whole upper Midwest. That As an ag market, we spread a lot of fertilizer in, in 2020. Got kind of going on that part of it there. You go again last fall again, it was kind of the same deal. We saw prices were starting to become on the increase. It was good value. We had good crop production, decent prices. Cash flow was good. Once again, 2020 was good. We doubled it again in 2021. So it's, uh, fall fertilizer has definitely increased in our area where that re- really wasn't as much of a play for us prior to that. It was more of a you know, Iowa, Illinois, they'll do that in the winter as far as they're spreading more. So definitely tightened up the supply chain in our region.
1: Do you feel like that trend will continue with fall fertilizer?
2: I think it's always an opportunity. I think guys look at it. They want to be able to shift. But it was more just as much as a price opportunity because they Making knew the advantage. price was increasing. They were taking advantage of the better better pricing that was out there.
1: Yep.
0: So what what have been some of the biggest reasons um or problems facing our crop protection products that we're seeing?
2: Well, like we said before, you know, you had the, the hurricane that hit the Gulf. Uh remember the dock issues we had last year getting to Christmas, remember we had all the ships backed up. Well, a majority of the tech and the chemical product that we get in the United States comes from China. The other thing that happened in China is they had the Olympics last year, right? So when they get to the Olympic year, they they shut down a lot of their their production. To, from an environmental standpoint, they want to clean up the environment better, and uh, that created a temporary shortage for us then. So you throw in the shipping shortages plus the shutdown there, that's really set them back. And now they're they're starting to go back into some COVID shutdown, but. You look at some of that pricing, it's really made some big changes here in the last couple of years. You know, a year ago, we were looking at Roundup in that $25-gallon range. Now you're closer to 60 Uh 240 from 25 to 45 I mean, most of the stuff, it just about it more than doubled on some of those products. Some only went up 50%, but it's definitely been a huge increase in chemistry costs. Uh, I think that's the bigger surprise for the most of us. Fertilizer, we're used to the jerks. Chemistry was always there, we always had plenty, and now this is the first time I remember us having these kind of tightness on the products. So, a lot of fuel surcharges showing up on the invoicing, uh, and the cuts, talk to one supplier about allocation. Most years they would only deal with 50 SKUs that they were worried about allocation. This year they're dealing with 500 SKUs that they're having to allocate for uh, what it is. For the most part, bulk product is pretty good, and pretty good supply it's the package shortage it was plastic it was cardboard you know you know you look at what it costs to build a house now that's all going up in price and we're all competing for a lot of the same products
1: so do you feel like the chemical pricing will become more in line faster than fertilizer i mean out of the two do you feel like one could recover quicker
2: i'm probably a little bit more concerned about the chemistry one than not uh you know it we usually had not been knocked offline this far for what it was. Fertilizer, you know, that's pretty specialized in what it does and who uses it and everything like that. But when you get into the packaging that we're talking about for chemistry and everything else, that's in every product. It's in the food industry. It's in the, the beverage industry. We're all competing for the basic minerals and the and the basic uh, products that are out there. So that's kind of been more the, the surprise of this supply chain issue that we're running into.
1: So, Brian, how is transportation and labor shortages? How has this affected agriculture worldwide and country visions?
2: Well, I mean, the one thing everybody's talked about is labor shortage, and and just in general, everybody, every employer you go by, you go by there's a for hire sign out front. So everybody's had to become more efficient in what you're doing. In that uh, it's made it a lot tougher to get drivers, and you know the one thing you look at is the. the so many of the CDL drivers are mature. <laughs> but you don't get it to your 21 to begin with as far as the CDL, so it kind of pushes it back in time when you start anyway. But, you know, there's a shortage of drivers in general. Well, that made it a lot tougher. Uh, the new CDL rule that went into effect now uh, as far as drivers. So prior to this, they could go out and get a CDL, and you could go in and take your test and pass ex- a driving exam, and we, we we're good. And they had grandfathered this this rule for a few years, and now we're looking at a person has to do online class plus so many hours of driving. It's going to cost about another $4,000 for a person to get a CDL versus before plus more time. Uh, That's definitely adding cost and time and shortening up our driver supply for transportation, and it's all industries. Um, You know, one thing I notice is, you have the Amazon trucks going down the road. You got the big semis, but what do they deliver to the f- house with? The van, right? Yep. That doesn't require the CDL driver at least. So you're able to get around that. The last mile is usually your most expensive mile to get it there, but uh generally speaking, it, it uh limits how what you can do with CDL drivers for the transportation cost. Now you add in the factor of fuel and what fuel prices have done recently. We're seeing a lot of the rates for, for what we have to do to ship to get product up here. Uh, they're going up by about a third uh, as far as the rates to get here for shipping. I had a chance to talk to one of our suppliers as far as barges and demerge charge and stuff like that. And so demerge is what you pay when you don't get uh, get the product off the off the barge in time. So generally speaking, it's just like rail cars. Rail cars, we get three days. When the rail car is shipped to us and it gets to our location, we got three days to get that ship get that off and get it returned. otherwise, after that, we'll pay anywhere from a hundred to a hundred fifty dollars a ton or per car to get that uh, for that car to be sit there. can be cheap storage at a time, but not usually barges same thing, but you're looking at about fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars a day and for them, I was talking to one supplier they get six days. From when the barge hits the Gulf of Mexico, leaves the port down there, and gets to them, whether it be in Illinois or along the Dubuque, Iowa River, and Mississippi there, they got six days. Now, they said that six days, though, if they're stopped at a, a lock and dam waiting for that to get through, that doesn't count. I don't know how they calculate that, but that's what he told me. But they had barges that got caught up. The tow barge people are running short of uh, personnel as well. One of the barges cost them over twenty thousand dollars to get it shipped. After the demerge charges, by the time it got to them, and off. So, you know, uh, fifteen hundred ton. That's that's a that's a big increase for them just to have to take on too. And they don't know when you make that commitment, so that increased the risk factor. So maybe what they used to factor in for a price to get it here, so much per ton. Now the risk factor they've increased that by another ten to twenty bucks.
0: How many ton are usually
2: on a barge? A barge
1: is 1,500
2: ton generally.
1: And I, This is a little bit off topic, but we talk about labor shortages. What are some of the things that we're doing as a company to alleviate some of these labor shortages?
2: Probably a couple of things. One, we talk about trying to be as efficient as you can with what you have. So we've added VSN cameras and making sure all the sprayers now we get our 120-foot boom, not 90s. You just increase your productivity, and we went from a few years ago – with our dispatch program but prior to that for spraying we were averaging on our best days some of the, a lot of the sprayers are like 3 to 500 acres a day last year we had machines that were getting up to 7 800 acres per day so we've definitely increased the productivity out of the machines and the manpower we get that helps a lot as far as bringing in manpower and stuff like that for recruiting you know it's been pretty much all hands on board we've had to make some wage adjustments which is needed but the other thing is, I think one of the best things we've done was really gotten to more training to attract employees. Uh, the Agronomy Academy that we've started here now, uh, where new hires come in, whether it be for applicators or uh, agronomists, hands-on training to get them up to speed quicker so that they can be more productive and, and feel part of the team a lot quicker.
1: We're inv- it takes money for us to invest in a 120-foot boom sprayer. I mean, it's a cost to us directly, but you know, in the end, it's helping us too just felt like it was worth it yeah
2: well the vsn cameras that we added to now the on the row guidance that we're looking at we might basically go from auto steer when we're doing pre-plant to add the vsn camera we can go to auto steering row crop just to take the stress off the applicator so we, not that he's hands-free but it, it really allows him to concentrate on other parts he can watch his boom controls he could watch everything else going on and not just have to concentrate on not running over corn yeah i, so I like think
0: going forward is well, as a leader of the me, you know, you're always going to be looking at the next technology that's coming and hopefully jumping on as much as you can.
2: Yeah, it was kind of neat this summer. We went out to uh, South Dakota. The Ravens, they show us DOT, and that was their uh, autonomous unit. And it was really neat to see. You're looking at something that's 150-horsepower motor, and it's all by itself. The guy was running it based on an Xbox controller from the side there right you get it going but they also showed us they were integrating a lot of that technology into the existing sprayers i mean you were looking at a normal patriot sprayer that would have the autonomy in there with the auto steer and stuff shot off on the boom so i think that will be a nice asset to have here everybody talks about drones and everything for spraying i i think it'll be the autonomous equipment that'll get us there quicker you'll still have the size and capacity to get things done when you're talking about a 1,200-gallon tank, you know, and what it can get done in an acre in a day, uh, a machine that size, it, it's a lot. We've been collecting the RTK boundaries for a lot of the, for a lot of our fields now. Um, so you, you could put a machine in the field. You could have a man in there for the oh-no moments, right, and to shut it off and that. But literally, you could get them going, get it started, and then let the machine run the The key to it eventually will be is to get that transported from field to field so you can't have it autonomously go down the road so you would connect on, get it to the next field with the driver in there, and then they could probably hit the button, start it, and get it spraying again
1: yeah It's incredible the technology they've come out with, and it's definitely not gonna slow down. I don't okay, think definitely a lot coming yet it
2: was It was cool to see the right next to us in the same field, so we were running the sprayer riding in the sprayer, I should say, we weren't running it. We were riding in the sprayer, go along, and they'd have the auto shot off, go through the grass, the waterways, and you'd see each individual nozzle kick on and off as you go through it. Right next to us in the same field, you got a combine running, and they would call retrieve. So the combine, the guy was driving, and he'd hit the button for retrieve, and the grain cart would come next to him, was autonomous. and would come racing up to it, and it'd be underneath the spout, and then you could get it to, to fake that they would unload unlo- it and unload it. Then they could send it off to where it would be. They could park it. And the guy would get in to unload that into the semi and it'd be right there back. They hit the button for retrieval to know it'd follow the path to get back to, to the combine. So incredible. It it cuts manpower, right? It does. You you could take what three people were doing there. You had a semi driver, you had a, a grain cart operator in the combine, you can cut it by third, you get down to two people. Yeah.
1: And that's not going away.
2: Yeah. And that's what we're looking at. Right. What can we do in the field? Go from three people down to two.
1: Yep. We're going to wrap it up today. We want to thank Brian Madigan uh, for stopping by and giving us a little insight on the supply chain and some of the issues that uh, are arising.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me, and I really enjoyed uh, listening to your other podcasts. It's uh, been very informational for us.
1: Thank you.